Hello, I'm Brandon Mercer. I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, June 2nd, 2016, and this is episode 28 of Garbage. All right, perfect. On this week, uh, we have nothing to talk about. There is a completely blank slate, so this should be fun. We always have fun when we uh, have a blank slate. We, we wind up saying things like, nothing to talk about, but today is an open book and it's going to be fun. Yeah, so um, I guess I have some news. Uh-oh, what's your news? Uh, I have a HP Chromebook 13 on my desk. Wow, nice. Um, so I was complaining on the last show that you couldn't order them from their website because yeah. they have been out of stock ever since they got released. And I even wrote a uh, thing to... Um, I was like playing around in the web development console thing in Firefox, seeing how their awful website worked. And like it makes a... Um, like an Ajax call to a JSON endpoint to get the stock status of this product. Yeah. So I was basically fetching it on my server every 10 minutes <laughs> and then parsing it with the uh, JQ. Have you ever used that tool? JQ? Mm-mm. Um, it's a command line jQuery or uh, JSON parser. Nice. So uh, the website bills it as said for JSON data. Um, but it's actually not as easy to use as said. The Syntax to like pull stuff out is very confusing. So you basically have to like do everything while you're reading the manual. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I did all this on my server, set it up to uh, pull this website every 10 minutes and let me know when uh, something, when it came in stock. And it never notified me. And <laughs> I just happened to be looking at the website after last week's show. And it said that they had like three of them in stock. So I quickly bought one. Nice. And I don't know why the hell my script didn't work, but whatever. So it arrived today, and uh, I was playing with it for like the last hour. So I'll do a quick hardware review. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, like, what the hardware is and resolution and CPU and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's a uh, it's a 13-inch notebook. It uh, I liked it because it looked kind of like the Chromebook Pixel, mm-hmm. but it is not like the Chromebook Pixel in that it is much cheaper. Um I think I got, this was like the high-end one with 8 gigs of RAM and 32 gigs of SSD or whatever. Uh, I think it was like 800 bucks, which is kind of a lot for a Chromebook, but I don't know if I'm keeping it. Um has a Intel Core M5 processor. Hmm. As far as I can tell, it's fanless. It has like the same kind of hinge like the Chromebook Pixel, but only from the... Um, yeah, it doesn't look like the one on the Chromebook Pixel because it's like a shiny, cheap plastic color. It's not like uh, brushed aluminum or whatever is on the Chromebook Pixel. So that looks kind of cheap. But otherwise, the uh, the case, I think, is aluminum. The bottom is plastic, which is not like the Pixel. So before, before you go too far, I'm curious. When you say 13-inch... Uh, aspect ratio and how big is the bezel on there because you can have a 15 inch laptop that looks ginormous and you can have a or a 13 inch laptop that looks ginormous um because it has a huge bezel or you can have ones with like a real thin razor edge what is this one where does this one fall yeah it's uh so like it's next to my macbook air which has a humongous bezel on it the Mm -hmm. uh, hp it's fairly small on the sides it's about average on the top and it's quite large on the bottom okay so um yeah it's i mean for a 13 inch machine it's it's fairly 
it's a decent size. Um, the screen is 3200 by 1800. Okay. So it's uh, high DPI. Nice. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people complain about with the early Chromebooks, and they're like, hey, you know, the resolution just isn't there. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, they were built kind of cheap, and they were kind of like figuring out if it was going to work as a product and stuff. And then they went with the Pixel, and it was at the other end of the extreme, and people said, well, I'd be willing to pay a few hundred bucks for something in in the middle, and that's kind of what this sounds like. Yeah, um, I mean, even the the low resolutions on, like, the... Uh, what was it? The uh, C720 was mm-hmm. like the popular one that everyone ran yeah. on Chrome OS on. Yeah, the Acer. Um, yeah, so that had like, you know, the 1366 by 768, but it was like a cheap TN display too. So um, it wasn't even IPS or anything. So this is a pretty nice display and it's not um, glossy. Like it doesn't have the, you know, like a typical glossy screen with the glass completely covering the front of it Mm -hmm. um you have like a bezel and then the screen is underneath that um and it's kind of it's not matte but it's kind of in between it's it's just like the screen on the macbook air um so that's Hmm. i mean i actually pulled up the site while you're talking about it and it looks really good and it looks like they start down at um at a 500 hundred dollar range and for what you talked about with the 32 gig ssd and um more memory and all that kind of stuff is where it bumps up a little bit more in price. Yeah. I can't get the bottom case open. I don't know why. I took the, the there's like six screws on the bottom, but the cover won't come off. So I mm-hmm. can't actually see any of the hardware, but I enabled the developer mode in Chrome OS mm-hmm. and then just did a D message to see what's in it. It's got Intel Wi-Fi, so that's um, promising to uh, for running OpenBSD. And since it's a um, Intel, it has CBIOS already on it. Mm-hmm. So once you enable developer mode with that, like formats itself and reboots, you hit Control L, and that brings you to the CBIOS prompt, and yep. then you can boot to a USB uh, disk or something. Or I, in my case, I have like my ISO stick, so it's a USB CD-ROM, uh, and it will boot the. Uh, it's the same problem that I had on the uh, Chromebook Pixel, which is when you boot the OpenBSD uh, ISO, it loads the kernel into memory. Um, like you can get to the boot prompt, and then it loads the kernel into memory. And then before it actually starts printing, like I guess that's when it jumps into like 64-bit mode, um, like once the kernel is actually loaded, I think. You know, when it starts printing like the text that's on a blue background, um, it doesn't get to that point on this machine and on the Chromebook pixel. I wonder if, um, if can you, can you tell it to output to, um, uh, what am I trying to say here? You know how you can like on the Socrus stuff, you have to tell it to redirect to the serial console. And I wonder if it doesn't have like a virtual frame buffer or something to use as the console. So you don't see anything outputting to the screen. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it's actually booting all the way because I actually installed OpenBSD to a USB key mm-hmm. and then made it like, um, you know, boot X by default and try DHCP on the USB Ethernet. Um, and it doesn't do any of that. And it doesn't look like it's reading from the disk after it loads the, the kernel. Hmm. So um, somebody, 
I'm looking at my old email archives because I was emailing back and forth with somebody that had been running OpenBSD on the Chromebook Pixel, and he had. Uh, it was when we started running the or importing the IAWM driver. He just like posted to the mailing lists and said like, "Oh yeah, it works on my Chromebook Pixel." And I was like, "Wait, how are you running OpenBSD on your Chromebook Pixel?" So I emailed him back and forth, and he was basically saying that because the um, the CBIOS doesn't have a VGA BIOS mm-hmm. uh, for the newer chipsets and stuff, you basically can't do anything um, until you load something like Linux that has uh, that full Intel DRM support, so it can take over and then start drawing the frame buffer itself. So on the older Chromebook Pixel, it works with our Intel DRM and OpenBSD, um, but I don't know. I don't think it works on the Chromebook Pixel 2015, and obviously the HP this one that I got now. Well, um, we, because we, they're newer than what we support. Yeah. So even if we did get a hold of the the CBIOS and build in the VGA um, add-on or whatever they have. It looks like we still don't support the newer hardware, is which is what you're saying? I mean, if I could boot the CBIOS that way, and I mean, I'd be happy just to boot X in Visa mode or something, mm-hmm. just to get something. I remember when I was building Core Boot, you could um, you could choose to build, you know, the VGA portion, or you could use whatever was built onto the hardware. Yeah. And, and I think by default they don't build the VGA stuff. So. Right, because they just expect you to be booting Linux that has mm-hmm. everything in the kernel. Like yeah. I booted a uh, Arch Linux ISO on the um, from my ISO stick, and it you know boots all the way to its installer prompt. Yeah. So, um, but I thought like Dragonfly has newer. Uh, <clears throat> what is the new chipset? Is it Broadwell? I'm having trouble keeping track. Yeah, I don't. I can never remember if it's Broadwell or Haswell or Core. What are they M5. saying here? This is like the fifth generation, sixth generation, seventh generation i7 or something like that. Well, anyway, not to get too hung up on uh, too technical details, uh, I would kind of like to, to talk about this a bit more. The first thing I want to say um, is that this looks like a nice piece of hardware. The Lenovo, did you see recently that uh, um, one, the first thing that happened was Google... Uh, was like the leading seller for their netbooks, their little Chromebooks and stuff. And they were better than the Apple stuff. And then, mm-hmm. like a few weeks later, they got bested by Lenovo. And then Google sold <laughs> a bunch of Lenovo stock. Or, wait, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Google, um, what did they do? They diluted their stock, and I guess they liquidated Lenovo or whatever they were. They were, and I and I thought or they were trying to free up like 185 million dollars or something like that, and everybody was kind of like you know chattering about it, like Google doesn't need money for anything, you know, like why did they do this? And then <laughs> when you kind of piece together all those things, you kind of see that it's kind of funny. Well, yeah. anyway, um, uh, honestly, I've used Lenovo for ages, and I really like their stuff, but this last uh, laptop that I bought from them, <clears throat> I want to say 900 dollars almost a thousand dollars and I've done nothing but put parts into this thing. Like, you know, I, I dropped my, uh, my previous Lenovo's all over the place on floors and hard floors and from high up and in my book bag and never had an issue with them. This one I've got like, I'm on my, on my second bezel 
It's broken on both sides, one more than the other. I'm on my third wrist rest, uh, and then this most recent replacement also has like missing corners and it's cracked along several places and all this kind of stuff. I'm on my second keyboard. Um, you know, nothing that like I didn't spill anything on it. It just like literally like things stopped functioning well. Um, and, and I find too that like the chassis warps and all this stuff. I don't know why I'm digressing so far, but anyway, suffice it to say, I don't probably want another Lenovo <laughs> and I've been kind of like interested in seeing what, um, you know, what comes up as far as hardware. And I, I feel like we spend a lot of money and you get a really high premium device, which is what I've done in some places. And I've been okay, happy with that. Or you just buy some cheap junk and then you don't feel too bad when you have to upgrade it in a couple of years. Right. And these Chromebooks, um, I really want to like them. I mean, they're touting like 11 hours, 13 hours of battery life. And the Intel option seems to be pretty reasonable, especially now that we have things like DisplayPort on them and reasonable, you know, IP. What what is this? Uh, this new Chromebook. It's like this HD plus, um, oh QHD plus panel with a, a several. What is it? Five point seven six million pixels and all this other kind of stuff. For 400, 500 bucks, that's a, that's a really good compromise. And then we just have to get OpenBSD running on it, which it sounds mm -hmm. like, uh, we're slated to do anyway. And, and I think this is going to be a really nice form factor. So we, we get the hardware from Google and friends and HP and all these other companies. And then we can put something reasonable on it as far as an operating system. Yeah. Um, that new, uh, H or Lenovo, it's the ThinkPad 13. Mm -hmm. So it's like, um, it's kind of a lower uh, price point than the like X two sixty or whatever. I've seen some pretty decent reviews of that. I mean, it's basically uh, it's you know a great keyboard, decent display. Um, it's not a high DPI, but it's like nineteen twenty by something. Mm -hmm. um, and you know it all just basically works, and it's not too thick, but you know it's not built like the ThinkPads of old. Yeah. And and maybe the advantage to that one would be that you can upgrade memory, or is it uh, soldered on the board? And I want to say that it's the memory is not soldered on. And yeah. from what I saw in the review, um, like they took the the case the bottom case off, and there were actually two memory slots, and one of them was not being used. So hmm. it was you know pretty welcoming to, uh, and you know like the wireless card was not soldered on and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, luckily with this HP Chromebook, it, like I said, it has the Intel Wi-Fi. So uh, I won't have to mess with that. It has a uh, micro SD card slot. So obviously with only 32 megs of eMMC storage, uh, you'd probably want any throw in a, you know, 256 gig SD card or something to do all your make builds and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and obviously that's the disadvantage to something like a Chromebook where everything tends to be built in. Uh, yeah. you're not upgrading, but I, but I think that that's the, the trade-off, you know, you buy something that lasts for a few years and you're pissed off with it anyway, and you just throw it out. Cause we have, you know, we're on two, two or three generations newer of CPU and DDR four and a half and now five and all this other kind of stuff. So, um, you don't feel too bad about not having to upgrade it. Yeah. Um, what else? Keyboard on it is pretty nice. Um, good tactile. Um, the only problem, of course, is that it's a Chromebook keyboard, so you have no page up yeah. or page down, and you have no, like, function key to do that. So you'd have to basically map 
something custom to do that. Alt and the up arrow is what it is in Chrome OS. Oh, really? I wonder if that like actually maps in other operating systems, like if it's handled by the BIOS or not. I think it is just Chrome OS handling it. I think that Chrome OS yeah. just says, oh, Alt, up arrow is a page up. But what I was I was going to say was, in my HP Chromebook, I really like the keyboard. So I think HP is is who we give credit to for, for reasonable keyboards here because um, each one that I've used from HP, I really like. Uh, my other one is what, the um, 11 HP Chromebook? Maybe. Uh, trackpad's pretty good. Not too loud of a click. I feel like the cheap ones always have a really loud click. Yeah. Um, smooth surface. What was up with that? Uh, those ThinkPads? It was like the 240, I think. X240. Where the trackpad had like that raised kind of bumpy surface. Well, my 220 has that. Isn't that annoying? I feel like that would like bother your finger after sliding on it for a long time. It is annoying. I always used a little nub, so oh, I'm not really yeah. one to talk. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I guess I'll keep playing with this and see where uh, where I can get with OpenBSD. The problem is I can't get the bottom case open, so I can't remove the right protect screw, so I can't flash a new CBIOS. Oh, uh, yeah. So I guess if I'm keeping it, I can try a little more aggressively to get the bottom case off, but I can't figure out where the hell it's... I can, like, lift a corner up, and I can try and get, like, a plastic tool under there, but it doesn't, like, I don't hear any snapping, so I don't know what the hell it's held on with. Hmm. Um, sometimes in the, what is it, chromeos.org, uh, chromium OS. Yeah, they don't, they don't have a... Uh, they don't have a developer, one yet. yeah. Yeah, it's too new. That's a shame. Yeah, it, it looks like a nice piece of hardware. Actually, my aunt, um, my family was over. This is actually the second or third time I've been asked about computer hardware. <laughs> and, um, and and I guess it's strange because I don't buy a computer for the same reason everybody else does. Um, and my advice is usually that you can't really go wrong by buying most things um, these days. You can spend, I think it used to be the case where you could spend a lot of time and get clever and you could wind up with a machine that performs significantly better for less money and I don't think that that's really the case anymore and I think a lot of people are going from uh you know like they're like my aunt she loves her iPad she does basically everything she wants to in that iPad and, and she's like all I do all I want it for is so I can sit here and do this it's like hey try this Chromebook out and I let her sit in front of my Chromebook and she's like yeah this does everything I need it's fast it's faster than my you know whatever mm -hmm. and uh you know for a few hundred dollars they have a relatively capable computing platform but it's hard to it's hard to people hard to give people good advice on computers um because it's so much to keep up on and i really don't think that there's um too much to be gained by splitting hairs comparing different things lately yeah my mom was using a uh, old mac mini that i gave her and then the hard drive died in it so we just went to like i don't know target or something down the street and got a uh, cheap chromebook for two hundred dollars or something, because mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, same thing. All, that was all she needed was a web browser, and I wouldn't have to field tech support calls anymore. And, and I think the other appeal of a thing like uh, to something like that, what which you and I probably wouldn't think about too much, is like antivirus support and updates and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, Chrome OS, 
certainly has its issues, but I don't see them end of lifing. You know, it's not like, oh, you're running Chrome OS 45. Well, that's end of life in two years. You know, yeah. you're going to have to buy hardware that'll support Chrome uh, 40, 48 or something like that. And, um, you know, you also don't have to pay your annual subscriptions to antivirus companies. And uh, it's it's really kind of hard for people to grasp that, I think, using something like Chrome OS. And uh, but I also think it's a, a convenience mechanism because the the every time I help somebody set up their computer, the first call I get is, "Hey, I have this thing telling me that Norton's gonna or insert antivirus software here is gonna mm-hmm. expire. What do I do?" <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know they spend more money on that subscription than I think you'd put into a Chromebook over the course of the three years. Yeah. Well, doesn't I mean on. Uh the few windows machines that I've used. Um, I just install Microsoft's antivirus. Yeah. It's capable. I I figure, you know, they're not going to muck with windows. They would have the best security out of any of them as far as not adding backdoors and all that stuff. And, uh, you obviously don't have to pay for it. And, and I think the other side too, is that you don't have to worry about an, an additional attack surface there's been a lot in the news uh, recently, and not just um, you know tabloids and hype, but actual problems with antivirus software and engines um, creating more of an attack surface than they're protecting, yeah. and uh, the the engines themselves being vulnerable to certain things, and so viruses can attack those now as well. Um, whereas I I don't think you have the same type of problem with the Microsoft version of the antivirus. I um, Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I haven't really seen too much about that, and I'm pretty sure that they don't use an engine that is um, is exposing itself the same way as these third-party programs do. Yeah. Oh, so completely changing gears. Uh, all this hubbub with uh, Image Magic that's been going on lately. What happened with Image Magic? So Image Magic had this uh, bug in it. Uh, I think it was, I don't know, maybe a month ago. And it had one of those uh, high-profile bugs that somebody came up with a name for it and a logo and all that. I think it was called Image Tragic, something like that. (laughs) Um, Basically, like, Image Magic has so many image formats that that it supports that, like, some of them, the parsers were done in a way that it actually, like, shells out to an external program to Uh convert. And so if you pass it, um, you could either like pass it a particular file name that would escape those like shell quoting uh, semantics. And so when it would shell out to the external program, you could actually just execute whatever other program you wanted. And then you can even do that like uh, internally within like an SVG mm-hmm. uh, image somehow. So basically the fix was to just disable a bunch of these um, image formats that you don't care about. Uh, that have these problems or uh, upgrade image magic and so of course when that went out everyone uh, started paying attention to image magic and fuzzing it and doing all this other stuff and they found all these other vulnerabilities over the weekend this was um, just this past weekend so I was uh, using image magic in pushover to when you upload or when you create an application on the website uh, you can upload your custom logo for it uh, your custom icon for it, and then that gets displayed with your notifications on your phone. Mm-hmm. So I would basically have to take you know random images from from users and then 
I would scale them down to a fixed size that I know looks proper on the website and on the um, mobile apps. Yep. So I was using Image Magic by way of the R Magic uh, Ruby uh, gem. Yep. Which, uh, and in retrospect, I really should not have done this, but R Magic uh, basically um, loads Image Magic as a library inside of your Rails app. So you can do all of the image magic stuff like with its with image magic's API by way of Ruby. So it was pretty easy. It was only like five lines to basically take the blob from the uh, from Rails that the user uploaded, and then run it through R Magic to you know uh, downsample it to the fixed size. And if it's a weird aspect ratio, like center it and scale it and do transparency and all that stuff, and then basically just spit out a uh, PNG image that I know would be proper. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all of these problems recently, I uh, wanted to uh, a get all that stuff out of my because um, I you know as soon as all the stuff came out, I disabled all those image formats uh, by way of the like XML file that you can edit with Image Magic. But I wanted to move away from loading all that stuff into my Rails app to begin with, and just uh, shell out to something external that maybe down the road could be pledged or something like that, that uh, I wouldn't really have to worry about. So I was asking in the Metabug IRC channel for suggestions on what to replace it with. Cause I wanted something really small that only supported uh, PNG and JPEG. And I didn't want any like weird, um, you know, file format, like guessing where it would try and do like use like lib magic or something and do all these weird parsers on the file to try to figure out what it is. And um, I just wanted it as small as possible so that I could just shell out to it and not have to deal with it. And um, somebody suggested like a Go program to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I figured like every time I upgrade OpenBSD, I'm going to have to recompile this little utility. And then somebody suggested NetPBM. Yeah. which I've always had like installed on OpenBSD because it's like a dependency of, you know, a bunch of things, but I've never actually like looked at it and seen what it did. And it basically follows like the Unix philosophy of you have one program uh, for a particular format, you run it on a file, and then you just keep piping stuff to other binaries that come with NetPBM to do the transformations that you want and convert it into another format or something like that. So like on a PNG image, you would run PNG to uh, PAM or PBM or something like that, uh, and then your file name, and then that basically just uh, form or converts your PNG image to the internal format that PBM or NetPBM uses for all of its uh, stuff, and then you pipe that to like uh, PBM. Uh, I don't know, resize or whatever the, whatever the command is, and then you can do the flags there to resize it, and then you'd pipe that to PBM to ping, and then uh, it spits out, you know, it writes out a PNG file. Hmm. So, um, I, so like there would be a separate binary for PNG to PBM or whatever, and then one for JPEG to PBM. So I'm basically just taking the, the content type um, that Rails gives me for the user's image. And if it's PNG, I run the ping program. If it's JPEG, I run the JPEG. If it's something else, I just come back and say, you know, do the, you know, do the conversion on your own. Just, I only accept these two file formats. 
And then NetPBM, you know, doesn't try to do anything fancy. If it can't parse it as a PNG and you've passed it to the PNG program, it just spits out an error and says, this is not a PNG file. I'm not going to try and convert it, which is something that like ImageMagick would try and do. Right. So you can't really like trick it into doing anything weird. Um, it's very Unixy in that it just, you know, errors out right away and um, you don't have all these, you know, you can just pipe uh, standard in from one into or standard out from one program into standard in on another and just kind of chain these things together to do what you need to do. So I basically replaced the uh, Rmagic and ImageMagick stuff on my server with uh, these NetPBM binaries. It sounds like it makes a lot more sense, too, from a usability standpoint. Um, you know, you're, you're saying, look, I trust this and I trust, or I don't trust this. I accept this and I accept that. Hand, hand it off to the appropriate uh, parser and it tries to do its thing and it says, nope, it doesn't work or it does work just fine. And then, you know, you have an API that you can do whatever you want with. Yeah. So, like, there was only one, basically, uh, feature that I lost in this transition, which was that if you uploaded an image that was not square... If you uploaded an image that was, say, like 200 pixels wide by 100 tall, uh, the RMagic solution would scale that down to 72 by 72 but because and preserve the aspect ratio. So it would be 72 wide and then uh, whatever that comes out to high. And then it would center it in the 72 by 72 image and then be transparent on the top and bottom. So your image would basically always look like you expect it to. Well, I couldn't. I can't get it to do that on the NetPBM stuff because um, it won't, like, I can't figure out how to do the transparent background and then center it if it's off ratio. Mm -hmm. So basically the solution that I implemented was always scale it down to 72 by 72, screw the aspect ratio. If the user doesn't like the way it looks, they can go convert it and resize it and do all this other stuff on their own and then upload a square image to me. Uh, and then it'll format it properly. Nice. Um, so it's not ideal. I would prefer, you know, once I can figure out all the weird flags and, and stuff, I, I think you have to like make a 72 by 72 transparent image and then pass that to like the PBM compositing program, the binary, so that it composites that transparent image with the scaled down version that like the PBM resize program makes. I don't know. Yeah. So basically, once I figure that out, I can go in there and just edit the command and then make it look nicer. But um, it's kind of one of those things that I'm accepting this usability trade-off for uh, security. Yeah, that's a good trade. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and honestly, tell the user, hey, you know, look at your aspect ratio before you update, upload this image. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always said, like, you know, if your image is not square, it'll be resized. It resized it a lot nicer before, but, um, you know it's not the job of the website to make pretty images. It's basically just uh, doing you a favor by resizing it at all. Yeah. You know, I could just say, if it's not 72 by 72, reject it, but whatever. <laughs> so uh, thanks to, I think it was Darren Chandler on uh, the Metabug channel who suggested yeah. that PBM. And when I first looked at it, I was kind of cautious because I was, if you read the description, it's like it comes with like 200 binaries to do this stuff. And I'm like, wait, isn't this just like image magic? It like loads, you know, it has 9 million image library dependencies and it loads all the stuff into like, it's trying to do everything for you. And it kind of 
is, but everything is separated. So if you don't want to parse, if you don't want to load, like the PNG to PBM binary that I'm running on the PNG that the user passes, if you run like LDD on it, it's only linked with the PNG library. It's not, it doesn't have all the other image parsers loaded into it. So by way of that, I'm only running that one binary on the user's input. So it's greatly minimizing the uh, exposure there. So you do have the power to, to run those 200 binaries if you want them um, and do all that stuff like ImageMagic can do. But if you don't want any of that stuff, you don't have it, um, which is unlike ImageMagic. You can't really strip all that stuff out. Yeah. That's cool stuff. I actually, um, I don't know how to transition this, so maybe you can just splice this back into the um, the Chromebook talk. But um, I wanted to talk to you about the, I want to ask you about the Chromebook power supply. Um, I, I noticed that the Chromebook has the USB-C, mm-hmm. and I noticed that there's two ports on it. And uh, generally, USB-C port can be used internal or external. Like you could plug into it and charge, or you could get power from it. Mm-hmm. And I wondered... Um, what, what the power supply was like on that thing. Um, I see that it looks rather significant, so I'm guessing it's probably like a 60 watt or something like that. Um, because I'm looking for, you know, a good usable solution for the, um, for a USB-C charger. And the phone situation seems to be like, um, oh, we support, uh, USB-C with quick charging Qualcomm Qualcomm's Quick Charge 3.0 versus the um, iSmart versus the rapid charging that's in whatever, and everybody's like, oh, they're the same, but they're not. Um, and you have to get cables that support certain things. So anyway, I was curious if you could, if you had any comments on the power supply that came with that Chromebook. Um, not really, other than it's just a uh, brick, and um, I've plugged the USB-C port, or er, uh, plug into both of the ports and it charged both of them nice um but i don't know too much about it beyond that does it give a power rating on the brick itself output 45 watt max yeah that sounds good though so it probably does 45 watts would be i don't know 15 uh so if you had five times three so that's five volts three amps yeah, it says output 5 volts is 2 amps, 12 volts, 3 amps, 15 volts, 3 amps. Gotcha. Okay, so that's 45 good. 45 watt max, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a nice little power supply. So I could use that on my phone as well as the, the Chromebook. That's kind of a neat little sidebar. I didn't mean to get derailed on that. So. Uh, yeah, and so it's got like the two USB-C ports right next to each other, and then it has the uh, the old school USB right next to those. So it's nice to still have... The old one and i also see here too it's got the backlit keyboard which is pretty neat that's a new feature to chromebooks i think uh my my x220 doesn't have anything like that um doesn't it uses the overhead light that you it casts down on the keyboard <laughs> yeah the think light mm-hmm. um yeah the backlight keyboard or backlit keyboard appears to be uh controlled by the bios because even when it booted CBIOS and was doing the OpenBSD stuff, the keyboard was backlit. Hmm, very nice. So I guess I have to determine whether I'm keeping it, because if I am, then I can forcibly get into the, uh, remove the bottom part of it so I can remove that screw. I mean, uh, looking at it here, the 
the palm rest looks like it's aluminum, but you said the bottom of the thing itself is just plastic? Yeah. I remember the screws on uh, my other HP Chromebook were underneath those those strips, and I had to, like, peel them away, and then yeah, all of a sudden... I, that's how I tried. I peeled them back, but there's nothing under them. Huh. So I don't know where else screws could hide. Anywho. Well, we had a couple emails roll in this week, people thanking us for talking about various things, and we've uh, replied to some of the emails, and we've had... Um, it's probably good to talk about a few of these things. Um, one thing uh, that was said is people said that they would, they wished we would spend more time on a particular topic. So maybe we'll we'll just cover like one of these things tonight, and then we can get on with the other things on another episode. It bit me again, by the way, the maps thing. Oh yeah. And, and I guess it's not even just a theoretical thing because I've managed to find all of the instant... Well, of course, I audited the code after the fact, but I managed to hit all of the cases in my code where it could potentially occur within a two- or three-month de- development cycle. So apparently this is no... I mean, this isn't one of those theoretical things that you might bump into once in a while. Like, you're going to hit it. So um, I got it fixed. It was like running with scissors for a while. <laughs> Yeah, we can talk about maps. We can talk about the Go maps um, in a little bit more detail. We were talking last week about um, Go's concurrency, and they advocate Go as being a good tool to express uh, a problem concurrently and still be able to read the code and manage the code. Um, And really, that's just breaking apart the problem into manageable chunks. And I've seen concurrency implemented in about five different ways now, in my own application, there's probably two or three of those. We'll call it two and a half. And, um, you know, the, the problem with concurrency is that as soon as you say the language is good at expressing concurrency, all of your libraries need to also work in a, uh, and support concurrency well. And that's what I was talking about is, um, you know, you have two different things in Go that, that say they express uh, or support concurrency well. The first is the database layer. Um, there's this database SQL library that's part of um, standard Go, and they basically say, like, um, you want to create this initial connection to the database, and it will actually create a pool of connections for you, and they're very upfront about that. And then you use them throughout your application, and it tells you right on the on the documentation, these are safe for um, concurrent use, meaning... If you build a web application, you get a bunch of requests in. You just have to say, use the session. You don't have to think about, like, checking one out of the the connection pool, putting it back in. Uh, You don't have to ask the database layer if there's enough uh, connections or any of that kind of stuff. You literally just um, grab this database connection when you start your application and then use it, and you don't have to think about it. Um, one of the things that's a little bit hairy is that not all of the Go libraries have equal maturity for the, um, the Go routines. So, for instance, the database API works great, but then if you use something like an HTTP client with a transport, um, it doesn't have the same type of capabilities, and it doesn't seem to um, manage the underlying um, connection pool in the same way. So whereas the database says, yep, we're creating a connection pool to this database and whatever, 
um, the HTTP library says, how many um, idle connections do you want to have for a particular host? And you'd say, well, why wouldn't you set a maximum number so that you're, you know, not firing off a 10,000, you know, go routines to the same place? Um, you would want to recycle that particular connection to that particular host and reuse it just like the database does. And that's one of the things that I ran into with concurrency. The first thing I ran into is that these libraries don't have um, equally mature, they're not equally mature, mature, whatever you want to say. And, um, and so what I had to do in one case was database layer, you use the connections, um, you set the maximum number of connections that you will allow to this database when you start up the database uh, connection pool and say like maximum connections of 50 and you're done. And Go recommends for the HTTP library, they say, um, you know, create one of these instances of these uh, data structures or whatever they are, transports or HTTP clients, and then reuse it. And so that's what I did. And it says, look, it's safe for, for concurrent use. So I passed it into this thing that fires off a couple thousand Go routines. And I started to see exhaustion on certain things. And I said, well, this doesn't make sense. It told me it's safe for concurrent use. Well, the behavior is completely just screwy. Um, if, if the HTTP client, um, it creates two by default and it should reuse them. But if there's not one available when you go to fire off your next several hundred Go routines, it creates new ones for you. And I sat there and I thought, this this is the exact thing the documentation says not to do with HTTP clients. It says to reuse them. So mm -hmm. why is it doing the broken behavior? That was my first kind of thing where I was like, what the hell is going on here? And so the next part of this is that I can't set the maximum number of clients that it'll spawn like I could with the, with the database. So now my code that fires off all these Go routines looks completely different for something that goes and persists stuff to the database than it does for something that fires off a bunch of Go routines to another backend process. Because now I have to have some other sort of mechanism to rate limit or throttle the number of connections that are in flight at one time to like 20 or 30 or 100 or whatever. Or it just kills the DNS server or it, you know, exhausts resources and so on and so forth. So when we're talking about the Go concurrency situation, there's some rough edges, and uh, it's a little disappointing, and I'd kind of been, you know, maybe a little bit oblivious to it, and I'd heard a lot of people who, you know, were using other technologies, and they're like, Go's concurrency really isn't so hot, and I'm not really going to speak too much about the concurrency, but uh, the library support isn't all there. That's the first piece. The second piece is um, Go sits there and tells you, well, locks are silly and they're hard to get right. And, um, you know, you're going to run into things where, you know, um, where channels and Go routines are much, much easier to use than, you know, locks and making sure you're accessing your data the right way. And what wound up happening with this map that I was using is I am processing a file and so I rip through this file top to bottom and I get out thousands of pieces of information and then I fire off thousands of go routines or whatever to do work on this data and I synchronize the results of that work on a map 
and the map is basically like um, an integer and then some data type or it's a string in some data type so for instance I might have something that says this is the zero position in the file this is the one position in the file and then on the data structure that I'm uh, synchronizing all this work on I would say position zero came back here's the data that goes with it and have a data type uh, on a map and you could say oh we'll just use a different data type but here's the thing they advertise concurrency as being like awesome and they advertise like look you don't have to use locks but in the built-in data type that is pretty easily accessible for this type of thing the first thing I ran into is maps are not safe for concurrent write and read access by GoRoutines. And the solution for this is um, on your map, on your data structure, you define a lock. And um, basically what you do is um, you define, like I defined these things called safe map. And safe map is uh, basically a map of string interface. And so that means, you know, your key in the map is a string, and then you can have whatever data type associated with that particular value that you want. And uh, I created a function that says basically the safe map insert function will grab the lock, it'll insert the key and the value, and it'll release the lock. And so, you know, the Go, the Go folks were advertising, you know, hey, look, don't fool around with these goofy locks, they're hard to get right, and so on and so forth synchronize through channels, use GoRoutines, everything will be good. And what's the first thing you do when you actually fire off thousands of GoRoutines? You create a data structure with a lock on it. <laughs> and you create functions that, um, you know, insert and uh, delete and get information out of this data structure using uh, sync RW lock, which is another built-in uh, library for Go, sync, the sync library. So when you talk about, um, I guess that was the question of, you know, somebody asking me about maps and Go, um, there's more than just the map problem. Um, obviously, you know, you could use some other data structure to store this data and not have to implement locks, perhaps. But it seemed like a pretty easy way and a pretty common way that people would, um, you know, synchronize work because then you take this map and you pull information out of it using another go routine and you say like hey now that these are all done pull out you know position 1 position 15 as you process through the file again and that happens in go routines and it it seems like a pretty common data structure for for doing that kind of thing so i hope that's a little bit better explanation of what i'm doing with them and how you need to do them in go um again it's not the end of the world but it is i i felt it was like uh, false advertising. I felt the same kind of feeling, you know, .NET's like, oh, look, we're a garbage-collected language. Well, you have to implement the disposal mechanism, but no, it's really garbage-collected, and it's like, well, implementing the garbage-collection function on, on your data structures doesn't really sound garbage-collected to me. You either are or you aren't, and um, mm -hmm. it was the same kind of thing in GoRoutines. It's like either, you know, this is going to work, and go routines are going to behave without locks, um, but there just seems to be so much other kind of, you know, nonsense going on. Now there's things out there like, well, if you really want performance, you're not going to use go routines in channels because there's a lot of overhead with that. You really just want to use locks, and it's like, well, you know, kind of feels like 
um, maybe it was missold because, you know, people aren't really, um, I mean, these aren't not like extreme limits. People aren't like, oh, well, we did three billion whatevers and we, you know, noticed that go routines were a little too slow for that. I mean, these are, you know, pretty commonly achievable workloads that people are running into and they're like, well, this is kind of, kind of slow for this. So those are my go routine qualms. Uh, when you were talking about the HTTP library where you give it a pool, but then if it runs out of the pool, it just opens new connections mm-hmm. and you couldn't set the, was it the maximum number? Yep, that's right. Um, that kind of sounds like magic, um, like the kind of thing that a lot of people criticize like Rails for and that mm-hmm. it does a lot of things for you. Um and you don't really understand or need to, or never like you don't know how they work and so the the common answer is like we well, don't need to know how they work um because it just makes it does what makes sense most of the time mm-hmm. i don't know that's just what came to mind uh it sounds like go and go or go routines specifically maybe are trying to do things for you but that but that falls apart when you try to do anything fancy, I guess. Yeah. But it doesn't and, and really sound like you're doing anything fancy. You're just wanting to like configure the, the magic. And, and I, and, and exactly, it wasn't fancy. I wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary. Um, and, and if I would have fired off 10 go routines at once, um, it would have created eight more connections to the same service, um, than it already had. And, and so the behavior is already different than what it advertised. It advertised that it would create two and reuse them and it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, d- I don't really know, like, I mean, maybe the behavior wasn't magic. Um, and it, and it didn't seem like it to me because like, it seems kind of like how a database connection pool would work. It starts off with 10 idle connections and you set a maximum and you can say you, you can go up to 50. And it'll use the 10, and if it needs more, it'll create more. And that doesn't feel too magic to me, but maybe that's just because, you know, we're kind of used to those behaviors and they're pretty clearly defined at this point. Uh, the inconsistency between the two libraries is what really kind of made me upset. And I didn't really understand why, um, you know, it was, it was literally spawning thousands of, um, clients to do this particular workload um it it just seemed like an an undefined behavior maybe you know unexpected behavior um because uh it's kind of like dns uh the dns libraries it's like well um you can't control the way our dns resolver behaves but you have to live with the behavior of it Mm -hmm. and it's like i just want to be able to control the behavior so that you know, I can kind of like keep it in its own little corner and I couldn't do that, which is the disappointing thing for me. Yeah. Uh, the other part, when you said that, uh, some of the libraries are not as mature, um, that if it's possible to write a library, uh, badly that uses go routines badly, that that sounds like a problem. Yeah. And like, like if it's a core function of the lo- of the language um like it shouldn't be possible to do it badly if it's something built onto the language 
but it's not so fundamental that it's like you can't screw it up. Mm-hmm. Like, how is that really different than implementing a similar library on in Ruby that can do, you know, a similar kind of go routine thing where it manages all of those? Um, are they threads or does it fork? How does that work on Go? The go routines? No, the go routines run. So you could have like 10,000 on a single OS thread. And all they do is basically um, they synchronize um, on that particular OS thread um, so that they aren't ever competing over the same piece of memory at the same time. That's uh, they're, they're advertised to be much lighter than operating system threads um, because you're not allocating the same type of resources and there isn't the same type of overhead. Okay. Um, yeah. So you, I mean, but like in another language, you could basically implement a similar functionality um, and because you're basically just implementing that pattern of a library like an HTTP library needing to manage a pool of connections and Mm -hmm. the end user being able to write something that uh, sends off a whole bunch of requests and then that that library handles the um, delegation between new requests and connections and results. If it were written in Ruby, I could see like it being possible to write something badly with it because it's not so deep of the language that it's impossible to screw up right but it seems weird that uh there are libraries in go that are able to get that wrong yeah i i think that's surprising to me too and especially because they're both pretty new i mean they they should behave pretty consistently mm-hmm. um you were you were talking about other people implementing similar stuff there's actually someone imp- implemented something uh for coroutines in c which is inspired by Go routines. Hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of took a look at it, and it seems pretty neat. Um, I guess my point of frustration was is that the implementation and usage of Go routines looks completely different for one use of the library than it does for another use of the library. Hmm. Uh, and that's, that's where I kind of got a little bit, you know, it's like, well, now I have to put a whole bunch of accounting in here. And the way I did it is I created a channel of Boolean types and the channel um, has a size or a capacity and I think I set it to like um, 50 so it can fire off 50 HTTP clients and basically every time you um, send a go routine out you put something onto that channel and so when you hit 50 it will block until um, you know, there's room in that in that channel for it to put another one on, and then uh, the other side of that is when the go routine finishes, it will pull that particular um, boolean off the channel, so that you know you can put another one on, and then uh, basically after that, you have a little loop that um, waits to make sure that the um, the capacity of the pool has reached zero again, essentially, so that you know that everything has finished working. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if I had to write all that in my code to do all that accounting, I may as well have had something, you know, with locks and threads and this and that and the other thing, you know? Yeah, because I'm basically doing that pattern in my uh, Ruby script that I was talking about a few shows ago. Uh, I'm rewriting yeah. a message dispatch daemon uh, for pushover in mm-hmm. uh, in well, it was written in Ruby before, but I'm rewriting it, um, and it's basically managing like five or six different connections, um, like a few to Google, a few to Apple, and whatever. Mm-hmm. And so there's like one 
master thread that actually talks to the database and loads up new messages and then sends them out to worker threads that maintain those connections to the servers, the carrier servers. Um, so mm -hmm. I don't have like a pool of connections, but I have just a pool of worker threads and then each one just handles a certain type of message. Um, but again, it just seems like it's a common pattern. So I'm sure if I looked, there's probably a Ruby library that greatly simplifies that management of, you know, putting things on the queue and uh, reading results back and processing them and locking and all that other stuff. Yeah. Anywho, um, do you ever watch, or have you ever seen those um, YouTube videos from Brad Fitzpatrick where he does pair programming in Go? Oh, yeah, yeah. Those are really cool. Um, yeah, he and Andrew Durand did a couple, HTTP2 yeah. and some other stuff. Yeah, I feel like I learn um, a lot faster that that way, like watching somebody else write uh, code to solve a problem. Like if I understand this, the problem the same way, mm -hmm. um, like seeing how they translate that those specs into code in a particular language like Go. Um, yeah, those are pretty cool. I wish they would do more. Yeah, I like those too. Um, Brad Fitzpatrick is also the gentleman responsible for um, Memcache, mm -hmm. so he's a he's a pretty sharp guy, and he's uh, he's pretty funny. I've listened to several of his talks too, um, and he has um, he has a, a project. I don't know what it's really called nowadays, but it's it's basically like a storage uh, repository for all your stuff, and you can like make it be a file system you can make it be a node on somebody else's computer you can make it your laptop and you can essentially like version all these uh, files that you have and keep all your audio files and pictures and really not have to worry about where they're stored but they're always there mm -hmm. um, but i watch him kind of work on that a little bit sometimes too it's kind of neat yeah so um, for those of you that didn't listen all the way through to the last episode uh, i said that if you listened all the way through our uh post-show that if you sent a DM to Garbage FM on Twitter with your postal address that I would send you some stickers and a whole bunch of people did that so I've mailed those out so you should get them soon if you didn't get the uh it was only five people the first five people so if you didn't get those stickers um you can still buy them on our website and uh, we got some emails from people that got their shirts and whatnot so that's cool that's awesome so I guess that's it for this episode. If there is anything you would like to hear us talk about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM and through our website at Garbage.FM. Brandon, where can people find you? Yeah, find me on uh, Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W. And you can also look me up on Google+. I'll be ranting on there from time to time. I'm on the web at JCS.org and on Twitter at JCS.org. 